Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. This is the recording from the live Where Will They Go podcast that Rory had on Wednesday evening with a panel of experts and people impacted by the government's cruel decision to not extend the moratorium on no-fault evictions. Uh, I want to keep pushing back on the people who just call it a blanket eviction ban. It was never that. Just to give you a heads up, the podcast itself is kind of broken into several parts. There is a general conversation about the impact it's going to have. There's a good bit of advice on people who are, you know, the repercussions of people who may be thinking about overholding and what it may mean legally. And then uh, Rebecca comes in at the end and shares her own personal experience. It was a heart-wrenching listen. So, yeah, just to let you know, that's that's the way the podcast unfolded. Uh, if you're listening to this, if you like what we do, if you want to help us keep the show on the road, you have to join us on Patreon. It's simple as that. The link is in the podcast you're listening to right now. It says patreon.com forward slash tortoise And there's lots and lots of goodies there for you at the moment, including the conversation I had myself with Nessa Horrigan, the Green Party TD who voted against her own government in relation to said uh, temporary moratorium against no-fault evictions. That's out now and it's already making waves all over social media. I think we had a very, very good in-depth, broad conversation. Questions asked and answered. Uh, You can make up your own minds. That's available on the Patreon feed right now. As will be shortly, the conversation I had the other evening with uh, Lucky Kambuli and Mehmet Uluda on against the hate at, at the Mayday Badge Appeal launch in Unite the Union. Uh, it was a great evening and a terrific conversation with two genuinely fantastic guys. So that's waiting for you there right now, as, along with all of our back catalogue, all in one place, completely plea free. We're asking you for the price of a fancy cup of coffee once a month. So if you have it, help us pay it forward and keep the show on the road. I'll stop rambling on now. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to Reboot Republic, the live podcast tonight and webinar on the eviction ban, analysis of it, solutions and action. And I'm delighted to be joined with a big panel um, of a number of people who have been very active around this issue. Um, And I'm really, I suppose, grateful to them for giving their time. We have John O'Hare, who works with Family Services in Focus Ireland. Um, We have Aoife Kelly-Desmond, who's a managing solicitor with the Mercy Law Centre. Siobhan O'Donoghue, who is of Uplift. Um, as far as I know, the director, but you can correct me on that. Um, and also Aidan Far- Farley, who is a colleague of mine in the Department of Applied Social Studies in Maynooth. We also have joining um, kind of late additions, but uh, no less worthy of joining. Leisha Nealon, who is a regular of the podcast from the Dublin Enquirer. Uh, we'll also be having Aoife Welby joining us um, from Fela Housing and... Martin Leahy, also listeners will be well familiar, um, who has wrote, written the incredible song, uh, Everybody Should Have a Home, um, and he's going to perform his song shortly. Um, and just before I go to the panel, I just wanted to do, I suppose, a short introduction, term, because uh, our listeners who have been, um, many of them I know, um, and many of them I see here on the, um, on the podcast, and it's great to, to have you here, have been very active in over the last few months and longer in terms of the housing crisis, but in particular um, have taken a lot of action around the eviction ban. 
And we organised tonight, and um, I was talking to Tony about this, and thank you to Tony for producing and facilitating all of this, um, about possibly trying to do something in response and also to Siobhan. Um, and I think it felt, you know, there was something about, I know our listeners are very active around this and some sense of trying to, to see how do we go forward now um, because it is a horrific decision um, and rightfully described as cruel and um, I've described it as one of the I think most blatantly cruel decisions any Irish government has ever made and to knowingly make this decision knowingly that homelessness is going to increase as a result be that hidden homelessness or be that people go into emergency accommodation, and that is something that I've really um, been disgusted by the comments by um, the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar that somehow uh, people going into emergency accommodation is an acceptable response when we know the trauma that that causes is is just wrong, and there, you know we need to challenge that idea that somehow emergency accommodation is an acceptable response to people being made homeless. Um, but I think there's you know, the the work that has been done in the last few weeks to try and get the government to not go ahead with this decision was quite significant. And I want to thank um, Dean Scurry and Mark Logan, who helped us produce the doc, the short video that went out, hashtag keep the ban, and we'd Brezzy and Claire Dawn, Mike Allen and others, and those who've been telling their stories as well over the past few weeks. Those human stories have had a real impact in terms of shaping the discussion, shaping um, the debate on it and the almost 6,000 people who actually signed the Uplift petition, which is a lot of people who signed that and again showing that people are really concerned about this. And I think the government um, made its decision in the clear, I think, assumption that this would just die down and the expectation that there wouldn't be much political furore over this, that there wouldn't be much of a public response Whereas they got that completely wrong. And I think they got it completely wrong because they're so disconnected from the the human impact of the crisis. And those of us who are, you know, linking in with people and supporting people on a, you know, weekly or daily basis are well aware for many years of the, the human scale of this catastrophe. But I think what struck a lot of us in recent weeks was this sense of, of shock from renters themselves that they were going to be, that this eviction ban was going to be lifted. And literally, that's that question of where do we go? Um, so we want to hold tonight to try and to give some hope, to give some analysis, to give some solutions, um, and really to assert that, you know, all of us here tonight are committed to ensuring that people are kept in their homes, that no one is evicted into homelessness, um, and that the pressure is kept on government and the state to ensure that that's the case, be that you know, in terms of pushing to reinstate the ban, but also the many other measures we're going to talk about today to make sure they're actually effective. Um, and just on that, to let people know, there is a Raise the Roof campaign protest tomorrow at half 12 at the Dáil. Catu, the Tenants Union, are organising a reinstate the ban protest at two o'clock at the Spire. And there's also the Cost of Living Coalition protest in Dublin on Saturday, while Uplift are also planning an event which Siobhan is going to talk about coming up a series of constituency events and there is of course the uplift eviction map um, I'm going to, to leave it there um, and we will discuss all these issues particularly responses around the tenants in situ scheme what can be done what can tenants do around overholding um, what possibilities there are around that and I'm going to hand over now 
to Martin Leahy, Leahy who appropriately is going to perform his song. Some people's misery are other people's gain. Enrich the rich and make them richer. They see property as opportunity. A business that'll make the sickness sicker If they build too many houses it'll drive down the price It's just cold economics to them So there's no will to address it cause it's not in their interest We've seen it over time and time again Everyone should have a home Everyone should have a home In this world, in this life It's a basic human right to have a dignified place you call your own Everyone should have a home Everyone should have a home Safe and warm where you belong Everyone should have a home Housing developers that are hung up on greed And hungry vultures swooping from the sky Crucifying rents that are on the increase Shamefully they bleed the people dry All the vacant properties we can see them in our towns Sign the papers and take down the boards A home not a hotel, a home not a hostel A home not a camera box on the side of the road Everyone should have a home Everyone should have a home In this world, in this life It's a basic human right to have a dignified place you call your own Everyone should have a home Everyone should have a home Safe and warm where you belong Everyone should have a home We've got landlords and government to vote and legislate In favour of investments they control Our leaders they facilitate and then wave away The emergency created at their door The money clients get picture and the poor just fade Into hovels and holes they can't afford Dystopian evictions, ruthless repossessions A wealthy country's people and a strangle hold Everyone should have a home Everyone should have a home In this world, in this life It's a basic human right to have a dignified place you call your own Everyone should have a home Everyone should have a home Safe and warm where you belong Everyone should have a home Safe and warm where you belong Everyone should have a home Safe and warm where you belong Everyone should have a home Thanks Martin Thanks Rory uh, Really powerful and I think so, so important And it's been great to see all the uh, different versions you've been getting of uh, people singing it It's been really, really cool to see I have to say um, And thanks for that um, so we're going to go first to John, uh, John O'Hare, um, who is the uh, leader of family services within Focus Ireland. John, maybe just in terms of, I suppose, outlining the the real human impact of what is going on at the moment in terms of homelessness and then maybe where you see this going now with the lifting, lifting of the eviction ban. Thanks, Rory. Um what I feel, see at the moment is a lot of families who, who are terrified. That you know, um, I, I spoke to a to a mom the other day, and she said, "You can't understand 
how it totally consumes you, the fear of, of losing your home. And it's every kind of waking hour, every interaction you're having with your kids in your workplace, whatever. You're just totally consumed with trying to find a place that unfortunately it's getting more difficult to find. What, what I'll talk a little bit in a second about what, what it's, it's like and what families tell us. Uh, it's like when, the, when they're yeah. experiencing homelessness. We, I can start to see it already now that the calls are increasing, the presentations of people coming into us are increasing. And I think, and I, I suppose I should preface this by saying, I hope I'm wrong about this. I hope it's it's not as, as bad as we th- we think it might be. But uh, the way I see it happening is families will uh, reach that particular time when, when uh, they have to go. They will try and get in somewhere with family, friends, <clears throat> that might happen, uh, but it never lasts. Uh, what's more likely to happen is they'll present to their local authority. Um, the local authorities will do everything they can in their power to push them back. First of all, that's it tends to be what happens when the pressure really comes on. They will do everything in the power and not even out of nastiness or or, or sheer bloody mindedness. It's, it's actually, they're going to be so overwhelmed. They will do everything in their power to push people away. And then when they can't, what's likely to happen is uh, they're going to run out of accommodation. Simple as that. They're going to run out of emergency accommodation. Now, in previous times of crisis, you know, the, the local authorities, Dublin Region Homeless Executive, various authorities managed to get more emergency accommodation. I, my, my fear is that they simply won't be able to keep up with that demand. So it seems inevitable to me that we're going to face into something really bad. Uh, and it, it may not happen overnight but I think gradually it's going to build up to something really serious I think as well uh, there's just some some basic logic in this which is more families and more people are starting to come into homelessness uh, there's less emergency accommodation and there's almost no way of getting out so uh, the result of that is going to be more people homeless and for longer and uh, you know what's that what's that like Uh I mean, where do you even start? Uh, I I asked. Uh, I was getting some feedback from a, from a family recently, and uh, Mam said to me, "It's it's kind of like you're building up to this, building up to this. It's totally consuming you, and then the next day, you're in some completely different place. You're you're in an emergency accommodation with your kids. It sounds different. It smells different. It feels different. The noises are different." Uh, and overnight, so while you've been holding on to this and you've been dealing with it, you've probably been keeping it from your children. You're trying to protect them from it. And then suddenly uh, you're in a completely different environment. And I think we, 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 we've we seen this before. Before COVID, to kind of put it in context, uh, in previous times of crisis, I remember we were up to maybe 100 families a week, uh, 100 families a month, sorry, becoming homeless. And I remember trying to contextualize that at home, having a chat with my own kids. And I, I live down in Johnstown Bridge in, in Kildare and uh, our local school has about 120 kids in it, primary school. And I remember we were chatting about it saying it's the equivalent of all of the children and all of their families in that school becoming, been taken out of there, dispersed into completely different places and that happening month after month after month. And so what happens there is everything is interrupted. Everything, their education, uh, uh, continuity with their friends, 
the basics of what my kids might do, going to football, uh, going to Camogie Irish, whatever it is that they, they would do, all of that is suddenly interrupted. And then this search starts for how do we how do we get out of this? And my, my big fear now about what's what's going to happen is the period of time is going to be longer. With more people coming in and less people getting out, the trauma that's going to be visited on those families increases. So it becomes more acute and it's going to last for longer. Uh, I know we'll talk about the solutions later on, but leaving aside the housing solution, or what's what's going to be critical is that we actually have enough support in place to try and help families in the midst of this, knowing that it's going to happen. So the whole housing thing is one one extreme of it. The next one is emergency accommodation. And the next thing is, how do we actually make sure families make it through this? Um, so uh, I hate to paint a bleak picture, and I always worry as well, because people listening in may be in that position. And, and we for many of them, we do manage to find solutions uh, through community, family, friends, uh, through our, our contacts with local authorities. We do help people get places. So I, I'd hate to put out the message that there's no hope. But from the point of view of the overall picture of what we're talking about here, unfortunately, that's what it looks like. And at the most extreme, uh, I know this question has been asked all the time, where do they go? If at the end of that sequence of, you know, family, friends, uh, local authority, emergency accommodation, maybe there's none, then we're talking about where do you go next? So we've often been faced with that reality of at a certain time of night, all the emergency accommodation is gone what you do and unfortunately families have to end up going to garden stations and uh, we then get into a circular argument with various powers that be who will say we don't have a policy of referring people to garden stations and that 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 may be true but it's like but that's what happens because what are you going to do you're going to leave them in a car in a park where they're at risk no you're going to go somewhere like that so uh, we've also again there's layers to this and obviously solving the housing crisis is, is the main thing but we also need protocols for what are we going to do for when we've actually run out of all options. Uh, please God, that would be very, that that would be rare, but it has happened before. It does happen. Um, I know Focus Iron, we've, we've written to the various authorities to try and agree a protocol as to what do we actually do when that happens. And it's very hard to get, to get an answer to that. Um, so that's, that's a bleak picture, but that, that's probably what we're facing into. Yeah, I think, it is bleak, John, and it's very, very difficult to listen to. So, you know, what is it like in terms of people actually, we know, going through it? But I think it's such an important picture that, in a way, you know, all the discussion and debate over the last few weeks in the doll we've seen, what you just outlined there, I don't think I've heard it. You know, the actual reality of this is the impact of the decision they're making. You're going on top of services which are struggling, you know, and each of these families, yes, you might prevent it. Yes, they might only spend a certain amount of time, but the trauma that causes the impact, you know, so I think it's so important to, to set that out. And, and absolutely, what is the situation when, as you say, there's nothing there and families have to go to a guard station? Yeah, and I have sympathy for the guards here as well. We, we talk to them and they say, you know, we, we recognise your plight. But we also recognise that this is not set up for families to come here in the middle of the night. Or for, and I, when I say I, I'm talking about families, that's what we started off talking about. But but it's it's not just families; it's single people, it's couples, it's people. Yeah, are are ending always at every level. But um, I suppose nobody has satisfactorily answered that question yet. When yeah. we've when we've gone through all of those steps, what do we do at the end of it? Yeah, absolutely. And it's so important to keep the focus. Listen, John, thanks so much, and we'll come back. 
to you on on solutions and, and where we can go. I'm going to go to uh, Aoife Kelly Desmond next um, from the Mercy Law Centre. Aoife, um, in terms of what I suppose what you're dealing with, what are you seeing and what do you think is going to be the impact of the lifting of the eviction ban? Hi, Rory. Um, so I suppose just for anyone who doesn't know what we do in Mercy Law, uh, we give free legal advice and representation to people who are facing homelessness around accessing social housing and other supports. So I suppose at the moment, just generally, the level of busyness in our service has really gone through the roof in the last couple of months. Um, I think we're up about 40% on queries to our service in the same period last year. But what the even more concerning increase for us has been the amount of people coming to us because they're being refused, not social housing, but actually just emergency accommodation. And as we talk about there, what do you do when that happens? You know, when people are coming to us, it's, you know, because they've reached the end of whatever processes they're going through, usually before people come and try and get, get a lawyer involved. But we've seen a really significant increase in that. I think up to this stage in the year, we've already seen almost 50% as many cases as we did in the whole of last year on refusals of emergency accommodation. And I think what we're seeing that coming from seems to us to be just the level of pressure on the system means that people who have any bit of complexity in their cases are facing a lot of barriers. And I think what, you know, what John said about that people are just being pushed back on so heavily and being asked to look at every other opportunity before they'll be taken into emergency accommodation can really impact people who maybe don't have a support network or they don't have something to fall back on and they can end up falling through the cracks. Um, so I suppose we're deeply concerned about that continuing because it, it is pretty clear a lot of the time when you're trying to negotiate with a local authority for someone that it isn't that there's 10 beds sitting there that would be suitable. The capacity is is so tight in all of the local authorities that they're trying to, you know, move all these jigsaw pieces around that just don't fit. But the consequences are for individual people and often quite vulnerable people. So, you know, this was for us when we would have been involved last year and calling for the eviction ban with lots of others here and other people, it wasn't to be a solution to the housing crisis. It was never going to be that. It was a necessary, quite extreme step because of how desperate things were. And I suppose what I find just really shocking is that nothing has changed. Nothing has improved. And the measures that are being talked about, like tenant and city schemes and things like that, they might be things that could have an impact over a longer period but they're certainly not dealing with the problem before tomorrow. Um, and we've already had contact from people who had eviction orders that were being paused because of the ban that are now out as of the 1st of April. And we're calling this week going, I've been trying to negotiate for nine months with the local authority to get somewhere to go. I'm now out on Saturday and I have nowhere to go. And, you know, in fairness, a lot of people will get sorted out, you know, but they get sorted out at either the absolute last minute or even more worryingly sometimes they might end up with a weekend or a week where they're bouncing between different people or longer and that just has a huge impact on people particularly people with families with kids or people who have other vulnerabilities like mental health conditions and, and health conditions um i suppose maybe the other thing we're seeing that again it's just quite concerning is that you know the way emergency accommodation works it's quite discretionary in the way that it's administered and certainly it feels again, presumably because of a lack of capacity, that there doesn't seem to be as much compassion around not just giving someone a crash bed in a hostel, but actually trying to give someone something that's suitable to them. And we're seeing a lot of issues with people being offered like really desperately unsuitable emergency accommodation that they have to take because they have nothing else. 
But, you know, you're talking about people being put into, you know, one night only crash beds or, you know, into single rooms where you've like parents and older teenage children of different genders sharing a single room for weeks and weeks. And it's just hard to see it improving in the short term. But that's maybe, again, not unfortunately a very cheerful picture, but that's what we're seeing on the ground in our service at the moment. Yeah, thanks for that, Aoife. I think, again, it's it's an important picture and, and something that John you know, spoke about and we've spoken about before that issue of, you know, the local authorities not even been able to offer accommodation or not accepting or encouraging people to go away, you know, essentially. And then those people, of course, aren't counted either in terms of our homeless figures. And so there's not this real accurate figure of how many people are actually in this precarious situation. And if they are going away, they're more likely, you know, as John said, they're, they're you know, trying to crash with families. They're, you know, trying to figure out some way and inevitably or sometimes anyway, they're then just re, you know, representing at some point, um, having gone through a very, very difficult situation. Um, Siobhan, I just want to um take you in, Siobhan O'Donoghue from Uplift. In terms of, you know, you set up the um evictions map, which has been very effective. Um, and I would really encourage people to have a look at it. And if you are uh, either experiencing or have experienced eviction or are facing it, go over and if you can fill out your own details where you are, obviously anonymously, um. But it has been very effective in showing, you know, all around the country where these evictions or people affected by it or facing it are. Maybe you could kind of give us a sense of some of the stories that you've been receiving from that. Yeah. Hello, Rory. Hello, everybody. Yeah, I I think it's important to, and I think it's been said here already, like these are like real people, like there's mothers, grandparents, teenagers, students. You know, I've just kind of, you know, went through the, the you know, the, the spreadsheet of stories we have, you know, um, people working, a lot of people with disabilities, living with disabled people, and a lot of teenagers um, in and younger kids in schools. Um, there's the, I'm just, one of the things that's really surprised me is just the number of younger people who are talking about um, being forced to immigrate. As a result of um uh, of not of being evicted, and um, are people who have moved here from another country been feeling that they have to leave? Uh, it's quite remarkable, actually. There's a there's a quite a number of people in that situation. Like the effect on children is overwhelming. Like the stories of kids doing their leaving search and their their you know their family with an eviction ban or eviction um order. There's the kind of eviction stories that we're seeing are, uh, you know, people who, like, you know, there's a number of stories where people, as soon as the news that the eviction ban was being lifted, got the eviction notice. And there's people who've been living with an eviction kind of notice hanging over their heads and, and waiting for, you know, the, you know, for the weekend, basically. And then people who are no being told they're getting an eviction notice um, at the weekend. I mean, there's one guy here, Thierry, and he said, I feel like a failure to my 12-year-old son. We have nowhere to go. Totally devastated. Eviction date, 30th of the 4th, 2023. It's like, you know, it's so stark. And I think, like, I'm, and I and I, I, I suppose the for me is that we're, and I've talked to a lot of politicians this week as well, is that, you know, people are often, come, it's like the story is told in ways if people are kind of, I don't know, There's it's dehumanized in a sense, you know, that they're not, that there's full context of people's lives. Um, 
are isn't often told in the when we're talking about um being made homeless or 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 facing eviction or living without a safe home. And I think these stories really capture that. And and every single person here, and I think it's interesting there's about 260 people who have uploaded stories. 50% of those people have said that they're willing to talk to the media. <laughs> like, you know, they're, we, you know, every single person has, we, you know, have, has given permission to be contacted. And I think, you know, while people are feeling quite um, victimized by a very um, cruel system, uh, don't want to be victims. And I think that's part of the power of this is that, you know, people want to, to do something they want to fight they 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 feel they might feel not they might feel a whole lot of hope right now and they're feeling desperate but they but people do not want to be victims they don't see themselves as victims and they want they want to do something about it and i think that's that's part of the incredible power of this is that it's not about um you know it's not kind of a you know seeing people in a very in a as a service user or a client even though people are often in need of service and and you know and supports but but there's something about being experts by experience as a result of living in this situation and i think that's what we want to kind of tap into and build on yeah no i agree completely and and i think it's something that you know there's two sides to it one is that people are in such difficult circumstances and you know people have been contacting me um, you know, in, in recent months and weeks. And I always say to them, look, you know, come on to the podcast and lots of you would have heard some of them telling their stories. Um, and a few people, you know, will then say, you know, oh no, actually I don't want to. I'm just not able to. My head isn't there. You know, I'm feeling just completely wiped by this. You know, there was one person who said they would come on and then contacted me earlier and said they can't. And they were saying like, you said, I said, they asked me to read out. You know, they said, I know it sounds a bit dramatic, but I was actually quite ill in the aftermath of their eviction experience last year, they were saying, and, and the thoughts of talking about it again um, wouldn't be a good idea, they said. Um, you know, essentially they feel traumatized and we have their Enya on the chat talking about, you know, the horrific experience of emergency accommodation who's on here saying, you know, eight months of trauma that she thinks will live with her to some degree forever. And so there is a very real... Um, a trauma ongoing of people but then you're right Siobhan there is the other side of it where people are saying yes I want to talk about this and you know Martin is here and others are here Rebecca here as I know on the call as well who want to talk about it and are in a position where they can and I think that's kind of the, the that's what I feel has changed that that it's you're right people aren't just seen as you know they're actually feeling empowered you know we have a right to live in our these homes and and they're not just property investment assets they're actually our homes and they has to be seen that way and I and I was thinking through that in a way I feel that oh, well, we know that tenants were and renters were treated as second class citizens for many, many years. And I think now that's that's actually changing. I'm sure. going to bring in Aidan, Aidan Farley now. Um, thanks, Siobhan. Aidan, um, you're a counsellor in Kildare and also a, um, a lecturer and researcher in the Department of Applied Social Studies. I want to just shift on to the discussion of some of the measures uh, in response Um. And one of the big ones that has been talked about uh, is the tenant in situ scheme. And we've seen that as a, you know, th there is real potential in it um, for keeping people in their homes. But of course, what we've heard is the reality. We've heard two things. Alicia actually sent me on an article from last year. I think it may, even the previous year where the minister had said to local authorities that actually they were to stop buying uh, properties where tenants were in situ. And now... The local authorities have been told again, oh, no, buy 
But there's a whole load of issues around that local authorities up to now anyway have been operating under, you know, if you're to buy a property, you have to look at its BR rating, you have to look at the tenant where they end the waiting list, that it's not as clear cut as just keeping tenants in their homes, which kind of the government are presenting. And you actually put down a question to Kildare um, Council uh, just this week on it. Maybe you chat, tell us a little bit about that. Thanks, Rory, and thanks for, for the invitation. And, and you've, you've summed up perfectly, actually, kind of the, the justification for me asking Kildare County Council, I suppose, their stance on it, their budget on it, and what their intentions were for the year, because it really has been nearly dressed up as some sort of saving grace in this situation. And I'd love to turn this conversation to be a bit more hopeful one, uh, but I, I'm not sure I can, I'm convinced just yet that that's the case, certainly when it comes to the Senate and Situ scheme. Uh, I've been contacted, like many others here, by a number of people who seem to fit the criteria to to meet that scheme. But there's no quick fix here. And I think that's been named quite clearly already this evening. That's, you know, when we look at the Oireachtas Committee speaking about this scheme last week and, and department reps were saying, we can't do this any quicker than three to four months. And that's really at a push. That's probably scenario A, where if the, the, the homeowner is willing to, to sell that to the local authority, there's still a huge number of administrative tasks that the council and the seller need to go through. I'm not convinced just yet that, you know, Kildare, for example, has an allocation of 55 units. For for, an, for 2023, 55 units is what Kildare, with a population of maybe two, 250,000 people, that number is so minuscule in terms of a drop in the ocean. And, and in fairness to the staff in the housing section in Kildare County Council, they're quite confident that that's not the target. That's not the limit to what they can do, that if the need is greater, that they can secure. But there seems to be, I suppose, consistent uncertainty when it comes to the rollout of this scheme. Uh, and that goes back to John's point. And in terms of terrified, people are terrified. And there's no other way, as a youth worker for 15 years, I have been speaking with young people, their parents in the last number of weeks, number of months. And that word sums up perfectly the situation that many people face right now. They do not get these weeks, these months or these years back. And so when schemes like the Tenant and Situ scheme are being posited as something that will fix all wounds, I still think we, we should reserve caution on that, Rory, just yet. I think it, and I suppose why it's so important to talk about this is that it is potentially a real solution for for many, many people. But the point is that, I think, is that to highlight, actually, this isn't set up yet, which, of course, was part of the argument for why they shouldn't have lifted the ban. Um, And we're going to really have to monitor it. But also, I think, highlight and put pressure and show people, actually, this isn't set up yet. It's not working. And I've like, I'm literally, people are contacting me again say, and I'm asking them, you know, tenants who are facing eviction and said, well, have you asked your landlord or are they interested in, in selling it? And they're like, oh, okay, I can do that. Like tenants aren't, some tenants aren't even aware of the tenant in situ scheme. So I think there's part of, um, I feel anyway, part of the strategy of trying to keep people in their homes is actually telling people there is that scheme. It's not really set up yet, but you should stay in your home until actually it is set up. And then the council or housing associations can buy it. And that there's that pressure put back on government to say, okay, you've committed to this. Now actually roll it out properly. Do you do you feel that local authorities would be willing to, or is there issues within the local authorities as well around like those practical issues 
of, you know, this question of, for example, a BER rating, if the property isn't of high quality or if a person isn't on the waiting list. You know, I, I, I think, and I, you know, we all think all those issues can be overcome. Like, in reality... I agree, Rory. I think they can. I think, yes, the homes need to be surveyed. They need to be uh, valued. They need to go through all these different types of processes. But is that a barrier to, to preventing this? I don't think so. But I think the point that you're making is crucial and what is the nub of it for... For us as councillors, speaking to so many people right now is this ban didn't need to be lifted now. I can't understand it. This, the system weren't in place to lift this ban. What is different about now compared to when this ban was brought in? And I think Eva and others have said that already. Nothing in the landscape has changed to make this okay to lift it now. Give people time, give local authorities time and resources to make sure that schemes like the tenant and situ can be administered in a timely fashion so that people aren't in this doubt, in this kind of landscape where they just are so unsure. And that's what leads to, as we're, as we're hearing, the genuine sickness, genuine trauma, genuine issues that could be avoided if these schemes were resourced and prepared for, as opposed to nearly an afterthought at this point. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Aidan. I appreciate that. We'll come back to you on it. John, I'm just going to take John in again. Um, in terms of, I suppose, from Focus Ireland's perspective, what do you feel need need to be done now? What are the key solutions in this, I suppose, emergency situation that we're we're facing and people are in? Um, I th- I think as uh, if we take it as as extreme, so the housing housing solutions on one end and then emergency solutions at, at at the other. And I'm always at pains to point out, like emergency responses are not the ideal um, in in addressing homelessness, but inevitably we keep getting pushed back into this. Um, so, and my, sorry, just just to say, when I say emergency, I don't mean actually emergency accommodation. Yeah. I mean emergency, including emergency yeah. housing solutions. Yeah. So then, if we take it in that in that vein, so at this moment, in some of the family services that um, that we're running, what what I need to be sort of reassured of by the local authorities, particularly in, at, at the moment in the Dublin local authorities, is that there is going to be enough places for people to go to. So it's far from a solution, but it's we're literally talking about if somebody gets to the end of all of the steps that they take, trying to get assessed, trying to get put on the housing list, trying to get emergency accommodation, that at that point there will be enough emergency accommodation for people because it's a whole other uh, um, crisis response then if there, if there aren't emer- enough emergency accommodations. So we need to know that there's enough. Secondly, let's assume that most people do get into emergency accommodation. It's likely from from everything so far in discussion that uh, even with the likes of tent and situ, et cetera, et cetera, working, they're going to take time. So people potentially could be in those uh, emergency accommodations for longer. So we need, and, and I've heard the heat and I've heard various ministers say, whatever resources are needed will be put in place. So we need to see the colour of the money on that because things like child support, workers are going to be necessary for kids who are going through the trauma of homelessness, um, uh, translation services for people uh, who who are going to be homeless longer, specialist services for, as Eva mentioned earlier on there, uh, people with poor mental health, poor physical health, etc., etc. We're going to need a lot of supports in place to make sure to get through this bit of it. Then, Ben, I suppose, as we, we look at... Uh, we, a, lo- a lot of our work and, and, and various other charities, a lot of our work is actually trying to get people out of homelessness and into some type of housing solution, whether it be HAP, um, local authority, etc., approved housing body and some of our own accommodation as well. What I think is the, the, the people who deliver some of those uh, systems, whether it be local authorities, 
tenant in situ scheme, just uh, standard purchasing of properties. They need to be resourced to make that stuff happen quicker. So we're talking about this scheme potentially not been up and running yet. The schemes that are, like the, the schemes that are already there that allow the likes of housing associations like ourselves or approved housing bodies to purchase properties, they're incredibly slow anyway. And they're the ones that have been operating for a long time. And you talk to anybody who's bought or sold property in that space, you can be talking six months or a year to purchase one property. So I think those, all of those have to be resourced and geared up to deliver those things quickly while we wait. And, and, and I suppose the bit where I would be positive, there seems to be a, a realization at long last that they need to just deliver more houses quickly. Uh, and w- one, one thing I would say that, that, that I get stressed about when we get into the nitty gritty of all the little schemes, it's daily distraction. It's like they'll talk about anything except building enough social housing. It's like mm-hmm. that's the that's the actual answer. But yet we get diverted into all these little fixes. Now they're all important and they don't to be flippant about and they don't mean to be. Uh, every, anything that adds one property, anything that gets one family into a home, anything that delivers one additional unit to a local authority is good. But they're all small things and uh, set against the scale and the speed of what, what's likely to happen now. In the short term, they're not going to be enough. And and I just, I hate to see that, that they would take their eye off the ball or that the pressure comes off in large delivery, substantial delivery of social housing, which is ultimately the only way we can fix this stuff. Otherwise, we keep talking about the short term crisis of how do we support people in emergency accommodation. Yeah, no, I agree completely. And, and I think that, you know, in, in part, I hope that in part that of this pressure that's put on that the focus is around that, that it is about, because they talk, you know, part of their argument about why they lifted the eviction ban was that they needed to encourage supply. And it's like, that's the wrong supply. That's not a supply that's sustainable. This private rental, you know, financialized housing is not a form of of, um, real, sustainable, secure homes, affordable homes. The supply we need is social and affordable housing and the state doing that on a massive emergency scale. Um, I'm. But I don't think Rory just said. Uh, yeah. I don't think. I don't think anybody probably sitting around this table or anybody at our sector ever said that the eviction ban was the solution to homelessness and housing. All we yeah. said was that this was to stem the tide of people coming into homelessness, and that the result that the fixing of the of the housing crisis is a different thing. But it's been presented that well, you know, homelessness didn't go down, therefore this isn't this isn't the uh, thing to do. It's it's mixed up too many different uh, logics in in one argument. Ab- absolutely, no, it absolutely was. And of course, the reality was the the data from the DHRE showed that actually presentations of new family new families as homeless actually did fall during the period of the eviction ban. But of course, it was on top of you know slower exits and that, which meant That's the overall numbers numbers went out. But actually, that evidence was there. Um, I'm going to bring in Leisha Nealon from the Dublin Inquirer. Inquirer. Um, Leisha, in terms of analysis of where you think this is going now, both in terms of, you know, are we likely to see the government come under more pressure to deliver these solutions? Are they hoping it's just going to die down? Um, what do you think is going to happen? Um, what do I think is going to happen in the... Like, it hasn't started to impact them yet because we haven't seen evictions yet. Um, but they think it's still Ireland. We're going to see families forced onto the street physically. And if we're going, it appears to me to be the way it's heading, I'm probably skipping ahead of myself a little bit. But if I was talking to Aoife this week about overholding. Like, if families are going to be so desperate, there is no urgency accommodation, they're going to have to remain where they are 
they can't get emergency accommodation. That, no. Then Darrell O'Brien is saying that the council will buy the house if you stay in it. So if you're a half tenant, no, a lot of half tenants are probably going to remain where they are in the hope now this tenant in situ team delivers for them. That would be my prediction. Um, how, how, what happens next? Ethan probably won't qualify to explain the exact in and out stuff, but like eventually the family will then be removed. And if we're going to see those, and I know somebody's at the end of this process, a lady in Dundalk, um, she's waiting at the moment for the sheriff to come and physically evict her and her kids off the streets because she was advised by the council to overhaul and advised by the council to go to court as well. And, you know, Landers has a court order for her now. So, like, as a journalist, obviously that's a story that you'd want to cover. Um, and people are going to want, journalists are going to want to cover those stories as they're happening. So, um, it hasn't started to damage the government yet, but it, it certainly is going to. Um, we start seeing physical evictions um, going to damage them, I would say, more than they than they realise. Some you know, some people would say, oh, it'll damage the Greens, it'll damage Fianna Fáil. I think it'll damage Fianna Gael as well. I think it'll damage them all. That's my view on it. Um, you know, Radker, very interesting, last week said that the judge won't evict you as well. But if you overhauled and you remain in the property that you're facing homelessness, judge will feel sorry for you and he'll take pity on you. Now, I don't think that's true, but if that's the message coming from government, again, that sort of probably motivating some people. Now, most tenants aren't, I was talking to this week anyway, weren't aware of these various statements and by the Taoiseach and the Minister for Housing. But if I was putting all of that together, if I was the HAP tenant, I'd be like, right, well, Leo Bradker says that to go easy on me and um, Daryl O'Brien says he'll buy my house if I just stay there so I mean what are people going to do? And, and I think I think it's the question is of course it, it is HAP tenants but it's also people who aren't on HAP people who don't you know aren't in receipt yeah. of social I, housing I'd be very cautious about that other tenant in situ scheme they're saying around the cost of tenant in situ I mean that scheme doesn't do that Um. It, you know, it's not real, like it hasn't been published yet. And even if it is published, things like that take a long, long time to get off the ground, Rory. So, for, but the tennis issue scheme is real. Like as Aidan has said there, there's huge problems with it. There's always, it's a bit of a Goldilocks situation for tenants. There's always been, you know, you've got too many bedrooms, you've got too few. If there's something wrong with your house, there's a planning problem with it. Or, you know, somebody put an extension on it in the 70s without getting planned information so we can't buy it. Or... Always been 101 good reasons not to buy a tenant in this same house. And Dublin City Council have done very few of them. Dublin City Council um, actually started it in 2018 to house RAS tenants. And um, because with the RAS scheme, they had to, as far as the contract, the council has to rehouse that family. So that's open for anybody that's on RAS as well. Your council does have to legally rehouse you. Um, so that was where the tenant issue first came from. But one city council did about between 20 and 60 a year. Never a massive scheme. Um, but it does exist. It is a scheme. And like councils buy houses all the time. So in theory, that could work for a lot of half tenants. Um, in theory now. But in reality, my understanding is the council's done a bit of staff to process the application. So, so a lot of people have been told, you know, there, there's a lot of landlords that want to sell to council. They want to keep the tenants in. They're being, from what I'm hearing, they're being told you, 
don't know when we'll get around to that because we don't have enough staff to process them. So again, that's, you know, but at the same time, it is it is a real scheme. It could happen in theory. The other cost rental one we were talking about this today, we'll have to wait and see how much money is behind us, how much resourcing is behind us, who's going to be approved to do it. Um, financially, it's viable because the cost rental tenant will pay the rent. They'll spend the, you know, you can charge them full rent of what it costs you to buy the property to maintain it. But um, just the fact that the scheme's not up and running, I don't really think that's going to help people who currently have eviction notices, unfortunately. Yeah, no, I, I think that there's a lot in terms of those, and, and we've said this is the whole point of why they shouldn't have lifted the eviction ban because these measures weren't set up in place properly. Aoife, I'm just going to ask you, there's a specific question came in there uh, from one of our guests just asking... Um, if I overhold, will I get blacklisted from the RTB to get a further tenancy? What would... Uh, hi, Rory. Um, yeah, so in, in relation to overholding, and as Alicia touched on this that um, earlier, and there was a published today that I think is quite helpful in that situation, um, there's a lot of risks to overholding and it is really concerning seeing a lot of the rhetoric around that seems to be encouraging people to do that because it does present a lot of risks for tenants. Um, there's, there isn't a blacklist that means you can't get a tenancy, but if you overhold for long enough that your landlord brings a case to the RTB to have a determination order that you need to leave the property, that can be a public order and it's there searchable on the RTB. So if you do try and rent a property again, your future landlord just needs to put your name into the RTB website and up will pop that there was a determination order against this person because they overheld by whatever amount of time. If you stopped paying your rent, it'll say how much rent you owed. And in reality, that will make it very hard to get another rental in the private market because landlords do those checks and it is public. And I suppose just as Leisha uh, mentioned then as well, if that happens and someone continues to overhold, you then get into a place where you're being brought to the district court by your landlord to enforce that order. And contrary to what Leo Varadkar might have said, judges have to apply the law. And most of the time, the law is going to say if that's a valid order, the district court is going to enforce it regardless of what's happening. We see judges showing great empathy to people and not wanting to evict them into homelessness, but that doesn't mean they have a choice not to and they will do it when they have to. Um, and then there's a huge risk for the tenant in that with the court order, they might be liable to pay the legal costs of the landlord and there's the stress involved with that. And then if that doesn't go ahead, you can end up with a situation where someone's waiting for a sheriff and they can end up owing thousands of euro in legal costs as well as as everything else. So it's, it's, it's not a situation anyone should be in, but people are obviously facing this because of the desperation that, that a lot of people are experiencing. I, I think that's very important, Aoife, in terms of outlining, you know, what is the process? Um, so that as you explained there, it is, you know, you receive the notice to quit from the landlord, which sets out a date by which you've to leave. Once you go beyond that date, you are then overholding and the landlord's likely to contact you and say, OK, why aren't you leaving? And you say, well, I can't find anywhere. And you ask for time. When asked them, would would they go to the local authority to buy it? It's not until the landlord goes to the RTB, and then it enters a potential mediation, 
that it's not automatic that it would go straight to being a dispute and go public that there could be time and I was reading some of the coverage of the threshold of threshold and work they were doing and around cases on that that it could go to months for example and landlord could be lenient and say okay that it's not automatic it goes to that public dispute situation yeah no that's right it, you are talking you know down the road these are the steps that can happen the first stage there would be a mediation or adjudication and if you settle it voluntarily with the landlord if you agree okay I'm going to leave and if there's any rental I'm going to pay the rent that it can be settled before there's a determination order in the RTB and that settlement is private and that's often a reason sometimes people will settle even if they feel they have a dispute because they want to keep it private but if it does continue on and someone tries to hold on then that's where you get into the situation of if there is a determination order made by the RTB, that will be public. Yeah. And because I have been contacted by other uh, tenants who are just, they're determined saying, I have nowhere to go and I'm actually willing to go through whatever is required. So, you know, there are some tenants saying that as well. And I think that's important that they understand, as you say, the, the implications, but also then that they, that's their, you know, right prerogative as well to you know in a situation where there is nowhere to go and this is the problem yeah i think the main thing as you say is that people understand the implications of what they're doing and that there are certain checkpoints that by passing those you can't go back in terms of the consequence and that people know that and you know particularly around overholding something that does become quite common as well is that someone might stop paying their rent when they're overholding Mm. and you continue to be liable for rent even if you're overholding. So if someone stops paying their rent, then even if they decide to voluntarily leave before there's a determination order, they will owe that landlord the rent. And even if they've left, they can still be pursued for that rent. So it's just for people to understand that and particularly to know that if you get to the determination stage, it's public. And if you let it go to the district court stage, you're potentially looking at owing thousands of euro on top of any rent or anything else. So it's just, I think people need to be informed on that and I think there there isn't the clear information out there on that. And certainly that waiting to it goes to the district court and hoping you can show up and a judge will take pity on you. I would say that is a very, very high risk and unwise thing to do. And I certainly would hope no one would be encouraged to do that by any comments that have been made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course it highlights again. Sorry, yeah. Sorry, Roy. I just wanted to jump in there as well because I mentioned the lady in Dundalk um, who was waiting for the sheriff's comment she regrets overholding but there's two stories in the article I'll put it in the comments now but the other story was a woman who started overholding 14 months ago and has not heard anything from her landlord then so there is no guarantee that your landlord will um, bring a case to the RTV as well for whatever reason she doesn't know why but for some reason he has not sued her and she's still living in the property 14 months later yeah. so there is lots of different results in it's a very complicated thing overholding and it's just to weigh up the tenant to weigh up all depends on who your landlord is a little bit as well maybe yeah of course it does yeah of course what's what's the landlord in the situation sorry Aoife you want to come in there yeah I would just just mention one thing as well just that for tenants to be aware of is overholding is where there's a valid notice of termination but if you get a notice of termination and you think there's any possibility there's something wrong with it if you yourself lodge a dispute with the RTB within the time limit then you're not overholding when that dispute is is being considered. 
and often like there can be issues with with notices of termination. They're very procedural. There's very specific things landlords need to do. And we, we don't review notices of termination and mercy law, but we still see them from time to time. And there are often uh, procedural issues that mean those notices aren't valid. So people should make sure they go to the likes of threshold and check, is there an issue with their, this notice? And if there is, do challenge it because even though the landlord might be able to issue a new notice and correct it in the future, if there's something wrong with it, people should deal with that and then they might have some more time without having to get into that risk of overholding. I think it's clear that, you know, as we go forward on this, that there's going to be a lot more questions on this, a lot more people trying to understand it um, and people in situations where they feel they have no choice but to overhold. Um, and I think, the, you know, that we're going to need to um, as I said, you know, reframe how that's seen as well, that it's not seen as some antisocial act, but actually as acts of desperation and people have been in that. And therefore, um, we're going to have to see, you know, how the, the the need to, I think, emergency respond to that as well. Um, Siobhan, I'm going to bring you in there just to um, kind of move on a little bit. I'm conscious of our time as well, that um, in terms of how we go forward on this, and there's been a lot of, you know, this huge concern out there and, um that sense of people wanting to do something who aren't maybe directly affected, but are affected in different ways by the housing crisis. Because, you know, as as you mentioned earlier, you know, people emigrating, people leaving the country, it's not just going into homelessness, it's emigrating. And of course, we have a generation emigrating because they're stuck at home in their, in their parents, you know, box rooms and they can't, you know, get a, get a home um, of their own, that there's a much, you know, bigger housing crisis. But in a way, I feel that this, is a bit like, as I mentioned, you know, it's like the a bit like the straw that has broken the camel's back in a sense that people have, are really, really angry about this, whether they're directly affected by the housing crisis or not, or whether they're directly facing eviction or not. They feel really angry because they know how bad the situation is. And um, it reminds me of that period of, of the water charges when people's kind of just their capacity to put up with austerity and tolerate it just, it broke and people just you know, protests in all sorts of numbers. Now, this is a very different situation in a different time, but I do feel that there's a real sense people, this was too much for people. And and the question is then, how do we give people an opportunity to express their opposition and to support people who are in the situation and progress it, as was said earlier, as John mentioned, to things like how do we get the progressive, positive solutions of tackling vacancy, dereliction, building social housing that we know is needed, but this government seems very reluctant to do. Yeah. Um, so so one of the things that I think has really come through over the last few weeks is that uh, TDs in particular have been on the hook for this. They, 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 the language that they use to try and evade kind of the, their responsibility to their constituents um is something that we're going to try and kind of, you know, push through on. And I think this is the shift that has happened even in the last week where they they were trying to wriggle out of taking responsibility and they want to kind of frame it always as a, it's an out there issue, like very count day, you know, saying that, what did he say? That it was like uh, giving sweets to children if the eviction ban was to be extended. Now, we're going to have a public meeting in Tullamore, um, a town hall meeting with these constituents, people who've contributed to the map, but more, much more than that, uh, with and invite all the the the, um, the the government TDs and the opposition TDs. We're going to invite the local media, um, um, and basically, try, uh, you know, bring you know, 
Chris, have people, you know, Rory, you're going to be involved, but, you know, local groups are going to be involved um, and put the questions to them um, and hold them accountable. Like what the, I think the key here, there are clear st- solutions like what John is in. If public housing is the key. There's there's more vacant houses than anybody in the country who needs a home. And there's all kinds of solutions here. The eviction ban was only ever to try and put a pause on the, the the desperate situation we're in, so I think the key, really, the key is getting getting voters and constituents in front of their TDs in you know in in a kind of in a connective way. Um, so what we're doing is we're on the we've just agreed on the fourteenth of April we're starting our first constituency and um, keep people in their homes town hall meeting uh, in Galway, and we're going to be doing it with Fela Fela Galway Fela Home in based in Galway. Um, we're going to try and do one every single week um, to give people an opportunity to connect with their with their TDs. Um, will they turn up? We don't know. We'll have empty seats with their pictures there. Um, and we'll be inviting, the, and I think what we know, we'll have TDs care about the headlines in on their doorstep and we're going to make sure the story's on their doorstep. So that's uh, very, I think, you know, important. You're going constituency by constituency, yeah. week by week, um, hosting these online um, seminars, essentially asking, meeting them, meetings. And of course, that ties in as well with the eviction map, which I assume people yeah. will be able to log their stories on. And as I said, I think that eviction map is so important as we go forward in terms of documenting the outcome of the lifting of the ban, because of course, that's the other thing the government is going to hope that, you know, these numbers aren't captured. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, we have the situation if you're turned away by a local authority, you're not counted or measured as homeless. So therefore, you're not in the figures. Um, and so we need, I think, to document that. Um, and so people can go over to it. In terms of if people do want to upload their story and see that eviction map, what's the, the details of that, Siobhan? Um, I'd hear I share it in the in the. Uh... It's already in the in the chat, Rory, and it'll be on the pod. It'll be linked in the pod. All right, it's in the pod. Great, people can go put their connection onto that. Thanks, you're from Galway. If you're got from your if you're from Galway West, I've just put this sign up for the first constituency meeting. Um, we know Eamon Cueva has already confirmed. Eamon Cueva is no. going to be there. Oh yeah, yeah. Great. So we're yeah. looking forward to uh, asking Eamon O'Quiver. That's keep people in their homes. Town hall meeting for the Galway West constituencies on Thursday, April the 13th. Is that correct? God, 13th, 13th. Yes, let me, let me check. Yeah, we'll check anyway. We'll confirm. People can check that. And you're anyway. speaking at it just so yes, you know. Yes, I am. So yeah, yeah we better confirm that date. Um, I'm going to bring in now, listen, Siobhan, thanks, Aoife Welby. Aoife, listeners um, of the podcast would have heard Aoife. We chatted um, with Aoife and some other artists and people who were really concerned about the housing crisis and started organizing in a new way, bringing together, I suppose, art and musicians and creativity and just creating a space. And you had an incredible weekend in Galway and I was down with you as well. Um, Aoife, what's your sense now, I suppose, in terms of the eviction ban? What does it mean, do you think? And I suppose in sense of the broader, all those affected by the housing crisis, particularly that kind of generation locked out. Yeah, um, I, I have to say, I heard Leisha saying earlier that, you know, it hasn't affected the government yet, but I, I have to disagree. You know, I feel people are talking about it now with me personally that never spoke about it. You know, people who aren't affected, they're shocked. Um, people were commenting on how there was actually feeling or like it was in the air. You know, this kind of 
shock and sadness over it. And I think coming out of that is kind of an anger, which is totally justifiable. And it's really, you know, it's shining the spotlight, as Siobhan is saying, on on those in 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 Chach, uh, Chach you know, the TDs, because they can't hide from this. You know, the the excuses just they're just not going to they're not going to last out. So um, in terms of 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 the effect of that decision, I think it's it's already started. Um, in terms of the energy for change and people, you know, stepping above the shame and the stigma that has been placed on them. I saw a comment by um, a social worker, I think Alana, and she was saying a lot of people that she works with just in the webinar chat there, you know, a lot of her clients feel a sense of shame. And I think, you know, we do need to 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 really change that narrative. And it is changing, you know, with people saying, no, I am going to stay in my home and I am going to resist. And I know Aoife Kelly Desmond was saying there that there are awful re- repercussions for it and you're kind of at the mercy of the judge. But I guess society, as a society, we kind of have to to shine the light on what our home's really about. You know, um, it is moving away from that idea of an investment. A home is, as John was saying, it's your whole bedrock. It's your foundation. It affects every single part of your life. It'll affect your employment, um, where your children are going to go to school, who you socialize with, even the smells and the sounds that you experience. Like you're completely, you know, displanted, taken out, un- taken out of, rooted, uprooted and put somewhere else. The trauma, I think that's, that's in the media and people like Leisha, like these stories are being covered now, you know, and people are starting to wake up. So that narrative is changing. So I think the eviction ban being lifted was a really bad decision by government, but it's really, really shining the light on how we're going to move forward as a society in terms of housing rights and, you know, what is acceptable? Is it acceptable that you tell a family or a single person or an elderly woman or a man that, sorry, you can't live in your home anymore, but there's nowhere for them to go? And I think, you know, morally, people just can see that this is totally wrong. Um, in terms of coming together, like we had Vela, uh, Vela Housing was two weeks ago in Galway. It was a community arts festival completely from the grassroots and all of our events were completely packed. Um, there was a real positive energy. You know, people were just felt empowered to share their stories and break that stigma. So I think we do need more spaces where people can share their stories. Like with the other referendums, I know the Housing Commission recommended a referendum on the ho- the right to housing and that needs to be put you know really as a priority for the government we need to push that and put that in the spotlight and when people share their stories and break that stigma it does change how society feels and thinks about home of what a home is and you know what people's rights are like should they be you know given you know sued thousands of euro because they've nowhere else to go you know we can change that by speaking the truth. And like John O'Hare was describing there, speaking about the reality, the lived experience for people. And that needs to be really covered in the media. And I would really hope to see, you know, that the journalists still, that would they really hold the politicians and the government and those in power to account. And we'd noticed with Fela, you know, the local newspapers and radio stations really covered it. And then we started to notice there was more coming in the papers, you know, it mightn't have been totally related to fail, but they're covering housing more and especially with the lifting of the eviction ban. 
Yeah, I, I think Eva, you've uh, you summarised it and, and captured it uh, really, really well and, and eloquently. Um, and I think it is so true that you know, out of this, we we don't accept this. And I think that's the point of you know all of what we're trying to do, um, that we don't just accept it as that it's okay, um, and that it's normal and fundamentally that you know housing is a human right. And unfortunately, we're still waiting for the Housing Commission to put forward their wording and um, we were expecting it early this year but for some reason it seems to be delayed um maybe Ethan knows more any more about that but I, I don't know any details on that but we had hoped that they were going to be bringing forward a wording on the right to housing um but I think it, what's so clear that comes out of this as well is that real need to put a right to housing in the constitution to just make it so clear and unambiguous that there's any limitations on potentials what governments can do but also that you know a home is fundamental for people and and that that is the ultimate um responsibility of governments to ensure people have that and this whole question about private property rights and that there's no ambiguity that a home is as just as important as the right to private property um and i, I do hope we will have that referendum i don't know if do you want to come in on that in terms of our the home for good campaign and um, you know, we're continuing to work on that, but it does seem stalled at the moment. Yeah, so um, I unfortunately don't know why it's been so delayed. It was supposed to be, as you said, around, I think, January, and then it was supposed to be last month, and now there's, there's just no word. But certainly, I mean, the, this whole debacle, for want of a better word, with the eviction ban being lifted, really couldn't make clearer why we need that referendum, because... It's very clear in everything that the government was saying around this that they took a lot of heed of the concerns around private property rights because that's a constitutional matter that they have to legally take into account. But when it came to the rights of people in their homes, that wasn't a constitutional or legal matter. That was just a political consideration. And they made a, consi- a political decision around that. Whereas at least if you had a right to housing, they would have two legal rights that they have to consider and they would have to find a balance that was actually fair between them. Um, so, I mean, we hope the right to housing is going to be brought to the people to vote on soon and that the Housing Commission will report. But certainly it's something that has always been needed, but it's it's needed more than ever now. Yeah, absolutely. Agree completely. I've, I'm going to go to Rebecca O'Riordan, who Rebecca um, was actually uh, on social media there around her own situation facing eviction. And I messaged her and asked her, would you be interested in coming on and talking? And she said she would. So, Rebecca, do you want to come in and maybe tell... Tell us your situation. Sure. Um, so my husband and I have been renting for privately for over 10 years. Um, so I would have um, moved back. I, I emigrated when I was 18 to London and I moved back. And my husband and I decided to move to Dublin because he had a job in Dublin. Um, so we were actually, we were living quite central in Dublin. We were paying, you know, eleven fifty a month. And then the rental caps came in. And our rent went up by 700 euros a month overnight um, because they were trying to get in there, obviously, before the 4%. Um, yeah. So um, we then attempted to move to Swords. Uh, we packed up our stuff. When we arrived at the house, uh, it turned out that the landlord of that house, um, he had never been a landlord before. He didn't really understand what he was supposed to be doing. And he had essentially, he had, we had viewed the property and by the time we got there, he had completely trashed it, ripped the phone off the wall, ripped the curtain rails down. 
So essentially, we spent one night there on the floor and then we got up the next morning and we went and slept. We went, we came down to Cork and slept on my sister's floor, went to Threshold for help. They managed to get us our deposit back. So slept on my sister's floor and commuted to work from Cork to Dublin for a month. Um, and then we got another house in Lucan. Uh, we were delighted with ourselves. Um, we decided that we had to buy a house because we couldn't live like that anymore. So um, we put our son into um, into a creche. So basically what we did was we worked nonstop and we did nothing but work. So we, you know, we didn't go anywhere. We didn't go out at the weekend. We worked seven to seven, five days a week, kept the head down and said, if we just keep doing this, we'll get there. However, it doesn't work like that because the goalposts obviously keep moving. Um, so what happened then was our landlord decided he wanted to give his house back to his son. And so at that point, we were being pushed so far out of Dublin city centre that we thought we might as well just move back to Cork and commute from Cork to Dublin for work. So that's what we did. So we moved back to Cork in 2018 and we were, you know, people were like, oh, the, the rent is so crazy. And we were like, hmm, this is this is nothing compared to what we've been through. I can assure you. Yeah. Um, so um, we have been in this house for five years, but I suppose we this entire time we have been saving. Um, but in 2019, uh, we had our second child and um, when she was seven months, um, she was diagnosed with epilepsy. And so um, basically the pandemic arrived when she was around, I think it was 10, 10 months old and access to healthcare was very difficult at the time. We had almost our full deposit at that stage. So we had a choice um, where we could get our daughter the health care that she needed um, or we could get a mortgage. And, you know, children's disability services in this country have completely collapsed. Healthcare had collapsed. And we made a decision where we were going to, you know, where we were thinking more long term. Um, and we thought, I mean, she needs healthcare. <laughs> you know, that's at the end of the day, she needs healthcare. So yeah. we, um, we spent, it was at least 20,000, if not 30,000 over the last, she's not even four yet. So we would have spent nearly 30,000 uh, in the last three and a half years on things like, you know, um, pediatric, you know, special buggies, um, special equipment that she would need, um, speech and language therapy, occupational therapy, um, neurologists, uh, special epilepsy alarms, you know, all of the kind of things that she needed um, because there, in our mind, there was no, there was no, uh, there was no real alternative. So um, we got our notice of eviction and like, I suppose as a like, bit of background, like myself and my husband would have grown up in council housing. Um, both of our families are in council houses, you know, both of our parents um, but we're at the point now where the housing situation is is so bad that we can't, there isn't a couch available because our siblings and their families are living back at our parents' house. You know, yeah. like my my sister is living in the spare room with her family, you know, so <laughs> there isn't, there's no couch available for us to go to. Um, 
So we have to be out by August. Um, our son is in the local school. Um, our daughter was due to start um, at a special school in September. We can't apply for transport because we don't know where we're going to live or if we're going to have somewhere to live. So we went to the council and threshold and, you know, citizens advice and everything like that. And basically, we, we earn too much to qualify for emergency accommodation. Uh, we're not on the housing list. We don't get HAP. We screwed ourselves. Sorry, excuse my language, but it would appear that we have done that. Um, so basically, we're at the point now where our options are we can um, we can go and live in a hotel and use our deposit that we broke ourselves for the last 10 years to save, um, but we'll never get out of that hotel. Um, we could go live in our car and put the kids into temporary foster care, or we can emigrate. That's that's the options. We're lucky that we have the, 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 the you know, we could opt that we could emigrate. We're very, very lucky for that, you know. Um, but it's, you know, like if we had, if they had kept the eviction ban, we would have, we would have had our deposit. Like we would have had it. And we're actually very close, just not close enough to make it. And there is absolutely nothing. And like, I know that we're not the only ones. I guarantee that we're not the only ones in this position. Um, and it's just crazy because we, you know, like I went back to college, you know, we, my husband's been in the same job for over 10 years. We've been paying two grand a month for the last almost five years now, you know, and, uh, but the but on top of that, you know, over 95,000 euros in rent and the, you know, 20 to 30,000 of healthcare, we were also expected to save 30 to 40,000 and to never go into our overdraft while prices were going up and up and up. Like what human being can do that? Nobody can do that. Like, it's just... It's just bananas. Like, like even just last week, we spent, you know, six hundred and thirty euros on healthcare because, as an, because I'm, I had to give up my job to be my daughter's carer, and I'm not even entitled to, you know, PRSI contributions on my glasses. You know what I mean? It's like, why am I doing these things? Why am I living in a country that clearly doesn't want me anymore? Why are we still? Why are we still doing this? Like, you, you know, you could. There's only so much of your time that you can spend pushing and pushing and trying and constantly being pushed back and so no, no, you have to work harder. And you're like, I literally have nothing left to give. You know what I mean? Why, why am I doing this? So yeah, sorry, a bit of a rant. <laughs> no, not at all, Rebecca. No, no, it's, it's just, it is utterly heartbreaking and frustrating. And, you know, just to hear that and what, you know, what, what has been done to you, you know, by this, this government success of government's failures and, so do you do you really think that emigration is what you might do? Like I realistically know, right? Like, you know, my daughter has an intellectual disability and autism. I'm what I, I'm not going to I can't I can't, you know, take her and put her into a, a hotel. Like my option is I can take her to the UK where she'll have access. To, now, and I'm, I'm not saying that 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 every other country has it, you know, is, is flying or whatever. But like, I mean, like they have a functioning health system, they have a functioning children's disability services. I mean, it this isn't just a singular issue, and I know that that's the case for a lot of other children and families who are in this situation. 
it's not just that that these children are being let down in terms of housing. Yeah. They're being let down at every single they can't get access to special schools, they can't get access to the speech and language therapy. Like every single basic human right is being like I mean, I, I I'll be honest with you, like we moved back here uh, when I was pregnant with my eldest because I felt that London wasn't the right place to raise a child. And I've, evidently I was wrong, you know, evidently I was wrong because, you know, London has never, London, you know, it, it has never done these things. Like, I feel like I've, you know, brought them back here to suffer because that's all that's happened is that we've spent 10 years trying to get out from under this pile of treacle. And like, we're so, so lucky because we are so privileged in comparison to so many other people that we've managed to keep our head above water for all this time. And that this is the one thing that broke us because, you know, those things would have, I'm sure they would have broken a lot of other people. We were so lucky. We had stable employment. That's something that a lot of people don't have. We're so lucky for that. Um, yeah, but, but at the but same it's... time, it's just not enough. No, it's not. It's not, you know, and again, you know what, you know, your story shows and it's so important and, you know, and thank you for telling it and is, you know, the fundamental importance of home as the base for everything, you know, to have that and to be able to try and work through all the other challenges that you face in your life. And, you know, as you talk about there in terms of your children and additional needs and to work through that and access services and that if you don't have that stable base of a home and it was one of the things that really, really angered me about this decision. But government policy over the past kind of four or five years and it failed to, you know, I pointed out to them and others did that like renters aren't, you know, students and professionals as I think politicians think they are in their head. They're like you, Rebecca, they're families with children and, you know, people who are in situations that this is their home and they can't just you know, uproot and go somewhere else and trying to build their lives. It's, it's, I know everyone here anyway would be completely, you know, trying to do everything they can to support you, Rebecca. And I know, you know, it's, um, you know, we will. And, um, I, I think it's, it's something that, you know, the, your story is absolutely not unique and there are literally thousands of people in that situation. And I think it's just so wrong. And, we will continue to hi- highlight it and listen, keep in touch. And thanks so much for, for coming on and telling it because it is so important that we all hear it. Yeah, no bother. Thanks. Thanks, Rebecca. Thanks. I, I think, um, I don't know if anybody does have any last uh, points they want to come in. I think kind of Rebecca's story there really captures it all. Um, and some sense I'd like to leave it there um, unless someone really does have something they want to say because I think it was so powerful so important and captured so many aspects of what um of what is happening and what we're trying to to campaign against and you know John and Aoife and others are actively working to prevent and working with families and we know Threshold and others are there as well um, and as Siobhan said there there is the upcoming meetings uh, in Galway um, to be part of if you want to check those out and uplift uh, if uh, Welby was talking there there's fail of housing there's going to be an event in Ennis people are coming together around these as I mentioned there's the raise the roof demonstration tomorrow um, at half 12 there's the Katu demonstration on Friday uh, at the Spire and there is also the cost of living protest and the home for good campaign as well um, still working uh, Aoife and myself and others um, 
on getting that referendum to put a right to housing in the constitution um, that governments could not make decisions like this they would be absolutely in breach of that right to housing if it was in place um, listen thank you so much to our panellists to my guests for being part of uh, this evening a difficult a difficult podcast and I think unfortunately there's going to be more ahead a difficult evening um, and people are in very very difficult situations and I suppose what it, what it should do is motivate us all as I know it does to continue and not to accept this as normal or okay but continue to highlight and campaign um, and support them and to give people the space to have their voice. So listen, thank you to Aidan, Siobhan, Aoife, uh, Kelly Desmond, Aoife Welby, Nisha, Nisha Nealan, uh, John O'Hare, and of course, uh, Rebecca Reardon for her story, and to Tony Groves for producing Tortoise Shack Media. Um, and thank you so much for all attending this evening. We'll talk to you all very soon. Bye.